Welcome to the Wellness Plus Podcast, featuring interviews with health and wellness professionals empowering you to take control of your health and happiness. Feel better, look better, and live better today by subscribing right now for new episodes every week. The Wellness Plus Podcast is brought to you by wellnessplus.tv and made possible by the generous donations of Psyche Truth Patreon supporters. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Karina Rachel, and I'm joined today by Dr. Tanisha Wards of the Infinity Wellness Center here in Austin, Texas. They specialize in functional nutrition, herbal medicine, female health, and hormones. And today we are going to be talking about thyroid health and why your lab tests may come back normal even when you're still feeling bad. So Dr. Wards, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks again for having me back. Very excited. So I think it's definitely a common experience that most of us have had where we go to our doctor with some kind of symptom or ailment um, only to have them do our lab tests Mm -hmm. and tell us that everything is normal. All of our levels are normal. Um, Can you talk a little bit about why that is? Yeah. So there's a couple parts to that. Definitely Western medicine is looking at a pathological range. That is a synonym for disease. So the lab Mm. range may be from here to here. We're often looking at a functional range. So something might be a low normal or a high normal, and that could still really affect your thyroid. Mm. So a patient may come in with the typical thyroid, low thyroid symptoms of hair loss, weight gain, fatigue, tired but can't sleep, and then they get their labs run and their doctor says, everything looks normal, you don't have thyroid disease but it's just barely in range. And that person can very well, could be very much affected by being on a low normal, where some people maybe that they wouldn't have all the symptoms being low normal. Mm. So we want it functioning at the center most optimal range. The other part is a lot of doctors aren't running very thorough thyroid panels. A lot of times they'll just run the TSH. That's the thyroid stimulating hormone. That, That actually doesn't measure the thyroid at all. I mean, it measures how well the thyroid's being stimulated from the pituitary gland. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the pituitary releases a thyroid stimulating hormone to stimulate the thyroid to make T3 and T4. So if they're only running the TSH, they're missing so much mm-hmm. of what's going on with the thyroid because that could look normal even if your thyroid hormones are actually low. Okay, That's one part of it as well. Is it true that when they you know, are looking at those normal numbers, so to speak, that they're actually just looking at um, like an average of what most people are presenting rather than comparing your numbers to what would be like the ideal most healthy person. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely looking on a bell curve too, right? So that's part of it too. And that may not be the normal for you necessarily, Mm. you know, being right on the edge of either side. So yeah, it, it's all very individualized as well. And comparing to last year's or you know previous labs is important as well. Another thing they don't often run is the thyroid antibodies. So that's something we see all the time that patients, they may present not having hypo or hyperthyroidism, but their antibodies are showing up. So they actually have an autoimmune disorder of the thyroid. And maybe I should back up and just kind of talk about the different things we see going on with the thyroid. Yeah. One thing is hypothyroidism, which we see the fatigue, the hair loss, the weight gain, 
And then we see hyperthyroid, where the thyroid is overacting. These people are um, anxious, um, restless. They can't gain weight, so usually they're too thin. They've lost too much weight. They, too, can have hair loss. Um, so that can be, that's the opposite. Mm. And then we see people um, with Hashimoto's disease, which is an autoimmunity, where the body's attacking its own thyroid. And what's interesting is you could have Hashimoto's that presents more hypo, so you're more the fatigue, the sluggish, brain fog, mm. you know, weight gain. Or sometimes you can go in and out with Hashimoto's. You can one day, you could run your levels on Monday and the TSH is high, which is indicative of hypothyroidism. And on Wednesday, the TSH could be low, which is more hyper. And these people are going like this. Yeah. Monday, they may be tired, can't get out of bed, and they're fatigued. Wednesday, they're anxious. They're almost manic. They can't sleep. Mm-hmm. Their anxiety's through the roof. So guess what? These people get now diagnosed with things like bipolarism mm. or mood disorders, and it's just their thyroid and their whole endocrine system is just going up and down. That's another way that Hashimoto's can present. So you could either have the hypo or more of the up and down. Wow. Can you talk about maybe what um, what the thyroid needs in order to function in a healthy way? And then maybe that also kind of leads into what are the common causes of thyroid issues that are becoming so common now? Yeah, so we know the thyroid needs selenium and vitamin E. Um, so when the TSH stimulates the thyroid to make T3 and T4, the thyroid mostly makes T4. And T4 is converted into T3 using vitamin E and selenium. And T3 is your energy and your metabolism hormone. So that's the one you really want in a high level. So that's one thing the thyroid needs. It also um, holds most of the body's iodine, which iodine is antifungal, antibacterial, antiviral. And every seven seconds, I think it's seven seconds, that the blood circulates through the body, it passes through the thyroid. So the blood is being filtered through the thyroid Mm. of all these microbes with iodine. So if you're low on iodine, also the thyroid's not going to work very well. So those are two things that the body definitely needs. We also know that fluoride can shut down the thyroid a bit. Yeah, and we know that fluoride is in some of our drinking water, and that will actually, and then we're, you know, putting it in our mouth at times, that will Mm -hmm. slow down thyroid function and hormone production. That's one thing that that can cause the thyroid to go out of balance. We also, we, we rarely think it's the thyroid. We rarely think the thyroid, you know, if your levels are abnormal or if you get the more extensive labs like we're mentioning, um, the T3, the T4, the thyroid antibodies, um, there's also a free T3 and a free T4. Say that three times fast. <laughs> there's a lot of other levels to look at. So let's say you do find some imbalances there. Again, we don't think the thyroid just woke up and said, oh, I'm going to stop working today. <laughs> today, I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to make any more T3 and T4. It. Yeah, not feeling it. I'm going to stop making hormones. It's probably a deeper endocrine system problem. So a bigger problem is, you know, if you do have low levels and you go into your traditional Western medicine doctor and your levels are low, chances are they're going to give you a thyroid hormone. Mm-hmm. And what we typically see is, well, people feel better for a while. Their energy comes up, their hair may start growing back in, they may even lose some weight. And we see that only last three to six months. Mm. Then they go back and they're like, Doc, I feel bad again. 
So they up the thyroid medicine again and they give them more synthetic hormone. And this can keep going on for years until they're on the high dose and then they still feel bad. That's when we know it probably wasn't just the thyroid. The thyroid was probably a symptom to something else going on in the endocrine system. Mm -hmm. And so that's when we trace things back to oftentimes the adrenal glands. So the adrenal glands and thyroid are antagonistic of each other. So if you're under high, high stress and your adrenal glands are overworking, your body, as brilliant as it is, says, whoa, slow down. We need to bring that adrenaline down. The quickest, fastest way is to slow down the metabolism Mm -hmm. with the thyroid. So that's when we end up having the low thyroid. By bringing up with synthetic hormones, we are bringing it up, but then the adrenal glands are still under stress, so we still have this pulling going on, so that's why it doesn't actually fix anything. Right. So that's that's one thing we find is it's not the thyroid at all. It's usually the adrenal glands under high stress pumping out too much adrenaline for too long. Mm-hmm. So we have to address both. Right. And we definitely live in a culture where I think stress is so common for yeah. so many people um, to the extent that we kind of lose our awareness of it. Like we're just functioning at such a high stress level all the time. Absolutely. That you're like, oh, I'm not really that stressed. But realistically, if you could actually look inside the body and see how those adrenal glands are working and how Absolutely. how stressed we really are, you start to realize like, oh, no wonder my body's not able to function the way it's supposed to. Yeah, it thinks it's being chased by a tiger or a bear all the time. And right. so instead of keeling over, the body's slowing it down with the thyroid. That's, that's, one, that's one reason we think the thyroid goes offline, I like to say, or goes out of balance. Another huge one is... Um, the autoimmune disorder I mentioned, the Hashimoto's, and we don't really know exactly what causes that 100%, but we see it oftentimes um, after birth, after somebody has a baby, or after menopause, going through menopause. So there's definitely something back with the endocrine system, with the pituitary gland and the ovaries. Um, we oftentimes see it with people who have issues with gluten. Mm. And, and what we know is gluten will inflame the thyroid, and so then the body and the thyroid and, and gluten, interestingly enough, can trigger a reaction for the body to attack itself. Mm. So oftentimes the body's trying to attack gluten and it ends up attacking the thyroid as well. Oh dear. So we have to get people off gluten when we find out that they have the autoimmune Hashimoto's disease. And then we have to put out, put out the inflammation. Right. Sometimes it's just over-inflammation and the thyroid's inflamed because of stress or adrenals or an infection. I've seen... Um, an autoimmune disorder happened from somebody having a viral infection that affected the thyroid. Mm. So then the body's doing what it's supposed to do. It sees inflammation in the gland as an intruder. So then it's attacking the inflammation. So it's it's doing what we're designed to do, but it's also attacking the gland at the same time. So we mm. have to somehow put out that fire and, and decrease, find the source of inflammation, remove it and decrease it so the thyroid can work. And oftentimes patients, again, aren't even having that tested. Mm -hmm. So they're just chasing this low thyroid level number, not realizing it's because the thyroid's so inflamed it can't regulate. Interesting. I also think about the kind of component that, you know, when you start adding in the synthetic hormones like Synthroid, for instance, um, isn't there an element where, you know, maybe it starts telling your body to you know, stop producing thyroid hormone. Like when you're taking in that synthetic, your body's actually going to 
you're not fixing the problem, which is your body not producing enough. You're just kind of filling in the blank, but then almost perpetuating or even worsening the problem that your body's not able to create the hormones on its own. Absolutely. And I'm not 100% against Synthroid. I think there's times and places for it. If people have had part of their thyroid removed or or completely removed or Mm. it can act as a decoy during Hashimoto's thyroiditis where it's an autoimmunity that the body, the antibodies will start attacking the Synthroid. So that is a good use of it too. But if we're just giving it for low thyroid, you're absolutely right. It's the body's going to get the signal back to the pituitary gland. Oh no, we have enough T3 and T4. Stop stimulating us to make more. Mm -hmm. And so you're absolutely right. So it's, it's not actually fixing the problem to getting your body to make its own. Wow. So can you maybe walk us through, like, what is the, uh, you know, approach to actually restoring, you know, healthy thyroid function for a patient? Yeah, and it, it all depends on where their starting point is. So if we find that the body's inflamed as well, then we absolutely have to start with low inflammatory foods that will decrease the inflammation in and around the thyroid. We have to start giving it healing foods, um, and then oftentimes we'll use herbs or homeopathics or we will sometimes use animal extract of thyroid to, to actually heal the gland. We also have to find out the culprit of why it stopped working. Mm-hmm. Do we have to also address the pituitary, the adrenals? Do we have to change lifestyle, stress, you know, situations, change sleep patterns? So there's, there's a whole slew of things we have to look at. But starting with removing the interference whatever that is, whether it's stress or inflammation, that's that's probably the ground zero point of starting mm-hmm. to heal the thyroid. So can you elaborate a little bit on maybe what some of those uh, anti-inflammatory foods are, things that anyone with thyroid conditions would maybe be recommended to be eating? Yeah, so we look at a lot of leafy green vegetables, a lot of good fats and oils, kind of more of a paleo-style um, diet for the thyroid, oftentimes things high in selenium or vitamin E is really good because it helps that conversion of hormones. So Brazil nuts actually are really good for healing the thyroid as well. Now, if they have the autoimmunity, then we really look at doing more of an AIP diet, autoimmune paleo diet. So we're taking them off sugars and carbs and, you know, caffeine is really a good one to go off for thyroid as well because it keeps the adrenal gland stimulated, which affects the thyroid. Um, We take them off alcohol, definitely gluten if there's a thyroid problem. All of those real inflammatory soy also can affect Mm. the whole endocrine system very much so. So we take them off the big ones, gluten, dairy, soy, refined sugar, caffeine. Sounds like a fun diet. (laughs) But, you know, I think about just in general, going back to some of those symptoms that you're talking about, you know, feeling fatigue, feeling so low energy, but unable to sleep. I mean, a lot of times when you give these little dietary recommendations, people are like, oh, I wouldn't want to change the way I'm eating. It's like, yeah. do you really want to live your life this way? Is <laughs> kind of the, right. you know, question. So um, is there a component that once you get the body, um, you know, restored function and get them hopefully functioning again, that they can reintegrate some of those foods? Or is it kind of like... Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes not. That's the dying question. Specifically with the Hashimoto's, people say, well, once my antibody levels are down and my body's no longer attacking itself, can I have gluten again? It's like, well, that is probably going to reinflame the thyroid and then you're right. going to start the attack again. So some of them, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I think it depends on how 
severe the case is and mm-hmm. what other symptoms may be going on. And if we had to do some gut repair or some other issues, um, you know, and you also have to live, right? So the 90-10 rule, if 90% of the time you're eating a certain way for the hormone balancing, 10%, maybe it won't affect the the thyroid and the endocrine system, but maybe it will. Right. That's why you know, each patient's so individual. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a tough one. Typically, though, we say no on the gluten if they had an autoimmune issue. Right. And I think that really speaks to, you know, kind of the philosophy of functional, you know, a more functional approach to the body, which is that all bodies are different. Yes. You know, it's so funny. We kind of think of this kind of cliche thing. Oh, everybody's different. You know, but then we kind of, in terms of our health, kind of seek these one-size-fits-all answers. Like, oh, well, if I have this problem, then I do that thing. And if my neighbor's doing this, then I should be able to do it too. And it kind of overlooks that cliche that every body, (laughs) every person's body is different. We function differently. We need different things. Um, So this kind of plug yourself into a puzzle piece and just expect it to work is really kind of flawed from the beginning because it ignores this whole piece that no two people's bodies are going to function the same way. And that's why we run some of the tests that we run, the extensive lab work, but also some of the genetics, which we're going to dive into later because everybody is different. Mm-hmm. We we re- recently had um, a little boy in the office, and he did not come for hormonal stuff. He he had Lyme disease since mm. age two. He was infected on the East Coast, which you can get infected here in Texas, but he happened to be up on the East Coast for, a, I think, a wedding, um, like a long weekend, came back, was sick. Mm. He's... 11 or 12 now, and he, he just wasn't totally getting well with everything we we're doing for for just kind of rebuilding his body around the infection of Lyme. And, and I said, you know, I wonder if something else is going on. So we ran more tests because, yeah, you're right. Just this protocol isn't working for everybody because there could be layers upon layers of things mm. and everybody's different. And we actually found that he had an autoimmune thyroid disease, Hashimoto's. And the and so now we're going back and changing diet, and we're using something called glutathione topically over the thyroid, mm. and internally to try to bring down inflammation. So we're we're kind of going in and trying to put out the fires and bring down inflammation. But you know, it's hard to tell an eleven year old boy not to eat gluten, right? But yeah. now we know that that is needed mm-hmm. for his healing of the other ailments of the Lyme. To you know, we have to work on the thyroid. Interestingly enough, his his parents took the lab work back to his pediatrician and she said, oh, we don't need to worry about that. He has a thyroid problem. I don't really believe that he has an autoimmune disorder. We don't need to worry about it yet. He's still young. And I'm like, what? He's going through puberty. Like this is exactly when we need to make sure his endocrine system's working with it. So they kind of said, don't, you don't have to go off gluten. Don't worry about it. Fortunately, they are looking for a new pediatrician and still (laughs) following a low inflammatory diet because the numbers are there. And I I was dumbfounded. I said to the parents, you showed her the labs, right? Like she looked at them and she said, yeah. So that's just how I think how dismissed sometimes the autoimmunity can be just overlooked. Even when we're looking at it, they're like, oh, well, his, and his TSH was normal. His thyroid stimulating hormone and his, his thyroid labs were not too bad. His T3 and T4 hormones were not bad. So they, they kind of, we're like, well, his hormone levels aren't bad. Do we really need to worry about 
the body attacking itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we do because he was tired. He was still having a lot of we got a lot of things under control like pain and some um anger outbursts and mood issues, but he still was really tired. Like yeah. something else is going on. Yeah, an 11-year-old so. who's tired. I mean, that's not <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Normally that age you're thinking they're like running on all cil- cylinders. Absolutely. And he and he totally would have to run around and play outside and then come in and lay down. Oh. So it was clearly something. Yeah. You know, that's affecting his endocrine system. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, yeah, everybody's different, right? With him, we're not diving deeper into hormone balancing and things just yet. Like we might a menopausal woman with with presenting as low thyroid. Like that's a totally different route we would probably take and look mm. at. And again, we do what we can with diet, an 11-year-old boy, right? right. He's, his parents are really being diligent, but right, he's going to birthday parties and yeah. you know, sneaking stuff. Right. <laughs> so that's tough too. And then even in, you know, school and after school activities, so many times, like they're rewarding the kids with like oh cake gosh. and pizzas and whatever. And uh, you just... Um, you know, you can't imagine a little kid being like, oh, no, I'm not allowed to have that. I mean, I'm sure there are some kids who would be very diligent that way. But, yeah, it would be very challenging in that age group. The struggle is real. <laughs> Our three-and-a-half-year-old goes to a, um, a preschool, and we've just opted to keep her off gluten and dairy because we find that they're inflammatory. I've had issues with them. We've looked at her genetics. She does have issues breaking down glutarase and lactase and things. So we just try to keep her off of them. She's not had symptoms. Oh, boy. (laughs) It is hard. The school lunches are horrific. It's all sugar and carbs. They put some protein in here and there, right? But it's mostly just bread and carbs and gluten and sugar, you know, And, and it's so hard and yeah, the struggle is real. I can't even imagine 11 and what we're dealing with at three and a half. She'll come home and she'll say, "I because we, we pack her lunch, mm-hmm. I want what the other kids are eating. Right. And her teacher said she went on a strike for a little while where she wouldn't eat her lunch. <laughs> so she wanted what they had. <laughs> like, oh, no, I can't even imagine 11-year-old boy because, you know, what they're buying are probably pizza slices and things that mm-hmm. are inflaming their body in there. But, yeah, it's real. Yeah. But our little three-and-a-half-year-old will say, I don't eat gluten. <laughs> She'll oh. say it that way. But she, she wants it right. already. Right. Yeah. Well, there's just so many different kind of, um, I guess, players, so to speak, when you're looking at all these issues and, you know, the day-to-day eating choices that you make, your day-to-day job. How stressful is your job? I mean, there's right. certain things that we do have control over making good eating decisions, et cetera. Um, But there's also all these components coming in that, you know, we may have some control over. Mm -hmm. We may just need a lot of willpower to have control over. Um, It reminded me when you were sharing that little anecdote about um, your patient taking the lab results to their regular pediatrician. Um, I was recently talking with uh, a gastroenterologist um, that we were seeing for one of my family members. And um, I just kind of asked, you know, the, the woman that was in there taking the, you know, vitals or whatever they take. Um, I said, you know, are you familiar with leaky gut? Like I've heard <laughs> so many different doctors talk about leaky gut. And I'm just curious if that's something that, you know, that y'all look at or that y'all have a test for. And she said, you know, I asked one of the doctors about that because I've been reading a lot about it, too. And I actually think that I might have leaky gut. And she said, you know, he said, um, leaky gut is just not something that we accept. 
in gastroenterology at this time. Um, it just kind of took a second, oh my gosh. but I had this kind of moment with, you know, with the nurse that was there too, because she was kind of, I could tell that she was a little troubled by that too. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe why it feels that there's this kind of chasm between the functional approach and the more mainstream approach. Um, I wish I had a good answer. I am just baffled every day. The only thing I can think of is there isn't a pharmaceutical for leaky gut to fix it. Yet. That's yet. I'm sure they're working on one. <laughs> That's the only thing I can think of, right? Because you can only fix it with food choices and mm. stress, lowering stress levels, right? Because when we're under stress, it eats up the gut lining. We need to make more adrenaline and cortisol. We pull all those nutrients from the gut. That's how people get ulcers under stress. So just diet and lifestyle modification is the fix, Right. That's the only that's the only thing I can think of. So, there are some doctors that are, you know, they're calling themselves more functional medicine doctors. Right. Mm -hmm. They're not mainstream that are absolutely recognizing it and realizing that that can be the cause of absolutely adrenal issues, which will then, you know, fall over into the thyroid that can the microbiome of the gut is a huge issue for stress, anxiety, mm -hmm. depression because it's m so many of your um, brain chemicals are made there. So the gut lining and plus our immune system, 80% of our immune system is in the gut. Mm. So there's all your viruses, bacteria, parasites, fungus, everything that we're being exposed to all day. We could just you know touch a grocery cart and put our hands in our mouth and probably get bacteria and parasites and you know, yeah. all kinds of viruses, right? But if our microbiome is in the right, is intact, it's not leaking, it's the junctions are sealed mm -hmm. versus leaky gut where they're, they're thinning, then we can fight that. We can get rid of it. We can, you know, attack it and do what the body's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's the only explanation I have of why it's not recognized. It, it's, and some doctors are open. They're like, hey, if that's working for you, great. But I've had some feedback of if you're seeing somebody more natural and you're taking those, like, I, I, you can't be my patient. Like, that's actually happened with patients. Or they'll say, you can take those vitamins, but they don't do anything. Yeah, I've heard that so many times. Gosh. I had a patient not too long ago. He's a really complicated case. Walk out of an endocrinology op endocrinologist's office because she looked at all of his labs and they were not in range, even on the pathological range. Mm -hmm. And she just kind of said, well... If you're taking adrenal support and it helps, like, I don't believe it helps. And, you know, this isn't an abnormal lab range. And he's a probably 20-some, early 20-year-old 20 boy, 23, 24. He said, you are not educated enough to be my doctor and got up and left. <laughs> and I forget exactly what level she was looking at. I think it may have been his cortisol levels. And she's saying, oh, these aren't bad. You know, not, not acknowledging adrenal fatigue, which right. Western medicine doesn't acknowledge kind of in the same lines of leaky gut. It's this, I don't know, mystical <laughs> disease. They, they don't actually acknowledge it as a disease until it's, you've not, now got ulcerative colitis, mm -hmm. which, you know, leaky gut is this gray area before it turns into true ulcerations. And, you know, adrenal right. fatigue is this gray area that we can fix and pull you out of before it turns into AdSense disease where you, you're not getting out of bed. Like, you, you, right. you're not going to lift your head. You're so, your adrenals have just given up. Yeah. But they'll recognize that, mm -hmm. right? And then they give things like steroids that, again, don't heal the adrenals. They just kind of lift you up. But, yeah. 
We'd like to briefly interrupt this interview to remind you that this podcast was made possible by listeners just like you. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash psychytruth, where you can watch the video version of this episode and all our podcast episodes. Plus, you'll gain access to over 500 videos of exclusive content, including premium courses and behind-the-scenes peaks. Help us keep this information free by visiting patreon.com slash psychytruth. That's patreon.com slash p-s-y-c-h-e-t-r-u-t-h. It's almost like if you had a a spectrum of health where there's like, here's like ultimately healthy, and then you start getting into like, oh, the body's not quite functioning, and then you start getting into like pre-disease state, and then like major disease state. Like the mainstream, you know, Western medicine is just kind of like looking in this area. Yes. And they're like, if you're not in this area, then it's not a problem yet. You don't need to do anything. Yes. And like, meanwhile, there's this like maybe 75% of your health, so to speak, yeah. that can be used as, you know, indicators and like really great information to help you figure out like, oh, your body's starting to lose function in this area. Let's pull you, like you said about adrenal totally. fatigue, let's pull you out before you get into that danger zone. Yes. Um, yes, that's exactly it. There's so much that can be done. And that is the spectrum of functional medicine or functional nutrition. Let's get you, let's get you functioning so you're not going into a disease state. Although we see people have already gone into that disease state and that that's a longer road to wellness. That's mm-hmm. a longer path to pull them out of. Um, so, yeah, the goal is to obviously not get there, <laughs> but to get there before it gets bad. Right. I mean, and you could take something like, you know, just as an example, you know, mammograms and cancer screenings. Yeah. like almost the same approach that you want to try to catch something early. You want to have this kind of insight that helps you, you know, know there's a problem before it becomes a problem. That's kind of the same way with a lot of these different, more extensive testing. You're just kind of trying to like peep into the future a little bit and kind of see where the body is at in terms of if you continue on this path, then you are going to end up with a certain disease state or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And what's what's very frustrating is sometimes doctors won't order these labs. They won't order things like homocysteine or C-reactive protein that measures inflammation in the body or, you know, free T3 or T3, T4, the, the antibodies, which I should list in case anybody wants to try to get them run. The TPO antibody and the thyroid, uh, antithyroglobulin and the thyroid um, antibody. So APO and TPO antibodies. So if somebody wants to get them run, but oftentimes their doctor will say, oh, you don't have a history (laughs) of heart disease, so we're not going to run C-reactive protein, or you don't have a history of whatever Mm -hmm. autoimmunity, so we're not going to run that. Well, how do do you know if you don't have those markers Mm -hmm. run if you have a predisposition or a history of it if you don't get them run? Right kind of thing. So it's this catch-22. Insurance won't cover it if you're not, if you don't already have issues with it, but how do we prevent it unless we look at them? Right. So yeah, it's tough. So in our practice, we fortunately belong to a lab co-op where we can get them for really reasonable prices. We can get a full lab. So when they talk about you know, you don't have a history of this illness. They're talking about like, did your parents have heart disease or thyroid issues? Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes you you know, but how do you know if you don't run the test? Right. And and sometimes they will. You know, you can get a doctor to run things if your parents have a history sometimes. But that is 
prevention medicine, and that's not always covered by our, you know, insurance yeah, coverage. Uh. <laughs> our medical, you know, model the way it is right now, that's mm-hmm. not looked at. But that is exactly who should be running some of these more extensive tests if they have right. a family history of thyroid issues, autoimmune issues, heart disease, you know, whatever. That That's exactly who should be running some of these more preventative labs. Right. Is there a strong hereditary component for a lot of those things? We're, you know, for the thyroid, we are finding in some of the nutrigenomics, the genetic stuff we're doing, there are a couple genes that we look at that you are more susceptible to having thyroid issues. Mm. Absolutely. So, yeah. And I would say, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, 75 to 80% of my patients who have had thyroid issues, oh, yeah, my mom has that. My aunt has that. Mm. When we find out something comes back, oh, yeah, my mom's been on Synthroid for 25 years. My mom's been on Synthroid for maybe 10 or 15 years. So the so next maybe que- I need to get my thyroid checked. <laughs> so the next question out of my mouth when I hear that is, you know, my mom's been on Synthroid for 20 years. How does she feel on it? Does she feel okay? Is she doing well? Because maybe, maybe it's just a thyroid. Maybe it's something else. Yeah. Um, my mom definitely is, I think has a variety of health issues. I'd definitely say the Synthroid is not working for her. She's not... <sighs> energetic she's not her normal self um I think there's like a lot of potential issues going on there and a big part of it is that you know they won't change their diet right you know it's like right thing you know um family's the hardest yeah the hardest to work with yeah they're so it's so hard and friends too right like Mm -hmm. it's just hard because you get attached to it and it's it's hard I've even sent my parents to other practitioners. <laughs> like, yeah. I can't work with you because I know what you're going to do when you leave my office. Right. You know, kind of right. thing. And then I also think there's this component, like, from parents when their kids come to them with something. Sure. Like, you're just <laughs> not as open-minded to it as yeah. if a perfect stranger comes to you with it. And maybe they have this more, like, authoritative background or something. I but agree. Spouses, I, too. I do not recommend yeah. <laughs> seeing your spouses often either. It's usually easier to send them to another practitioner but then I have sent my husband to other practitioners and I come home and I look at what they're doing I'm like oh no they didn't take this into a fact factor do they know you have this genetic defect do they know you're you know like, right, I'm like right. this isn't right so yeah it's really hard very interesting um can you go back in again talking about some of the um additional lab work that you do for the thyroid and maybe some of those pieces I mean I think the genetic testing is really fascinating as well yeah. Yeah. So genetic testing, it just kind of tells us what you might be predispositioned to if you have some gene defects. Um, so I, I always say the genetics tell us why something's going on, but the lab work, like blood work, will tell us what's going on in the pre- present moment. Mm. But the genetics could tell us how you got here or what needs to be looked at to prevent these labs from being out of place. So our our most thorough thyroid panel has um, the TSH, which is what everybody runs and what where most practitioners stop. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, the TSH is normal. You must be fine. Again, that comes from the pituitary gland, not, not the thyroid. It stimulates the thyroid. So we run TSH, T3, T4. There's free T3. There's T3 uptake. There's free T4, there's T4 uptake, and then the two thyroid Hashimoto antibodies. And that's our most thorough 
mm-hmm. panel that we look at. And that's important because your levels may be okay, the T3 and T4, but the the free forms, which are actually the forms that are helping, that actually give the most energy, that's, wh- that's where you're actually getting the benefits from them, mm. may be low. Or the uptakes may be low, which means they're not being upregulated properly. So there's all there, there's so much more to the thyroid than just is it is the stimulating hormone in balance. Right. There's all all these different components of where it could be breaking down mm-hmm. and and finding that matters. Right. It could be like I said before the conversion. You have enough of the T4, or even it's high, but your T3 is low, so then it's not converting to the proper hormone. Right. And that alone can cause low metabolism and fatigue of not having enough T3. Right. And I just kind of think about a, you know, intricate machine with a lot of moving parts and you start to just kind of get this visual image for there's so much more going on than like step one, body, you know, produces thyroid hormone. (laughs) Step two, body uses thyroid hormone. There's all these different areas (laughs) in between that, whether you think of it like a board game or, you know. A symphony is a good one. Yeah. I've heard people say the endocrine system's like a symphony that all have to work together mm-hmm. in the right time and right order. And, and yes. if just one player is out, absolutely, the, you'll you'll hear it. You'll know. You know. Absolutely. Um, Interestingly enough, a lot of patients come in for fertility, for acupuncture and, and things into the clinic, and we trace it back up to their thyroid and their pituitary gland. So you know, the thyroid not working can can cause all different issues all the way down to the ovaries in the endocrine system. We found that to be a huge one. Are there any other examples like that? Like somebody came in for this and then it traced back to thyroid? Oh, gosh, let me think. Um, (laughs) Let me think. I know that there's some good ones. Hair loss is a huge one. People come in for hair loss and we trace that often to the thyroid. Mm. Um, Definitely fatigue and insomnia, circadian rhythms off. Um, eczema. I actually had a patient with eczema and her thyroid was way off and I still don't exactly know why, but we honed in on her thyroid and her eczema got better. Wow. Yeah. We don't know exactly what was happening. And now there was a lot of things we did to hone in on and help balance her thyroid, including gut repair and some other things. So that makes sense. Eczema and gut repair. Yeah. Um, it could have been low inflammatory foods we put her on causing the eczema, but she says it was my thyroid <laughs> that caused my eczema. And I'm like, well, it was probably five or six degrees separation from that. But right. yes, your thyroid was out of balance and now the eczema's better. Yeah. And perhaps that, kind of that just like general inflammation and the gut not functioning the way it's supposed to Absolutely. kind of like manifested in the observable symptom of eczema yes. and also resulted in the less observable symptom of the thyroid dysfunction. I would say a huge thing we see resolve with balance in the thyroid is mood, especially with the people who have the autoimmunity. I mean, they can just be in a really high mood and a really low mood. I've seen a lot of what people were told or described told they had depression or they would describe it as depression, it's really a thyroid imbalance. Mm-hmm. So that, that's that been a big one. Very interesting. So you keep mentioning the pituitary gland oh, yeah. um, since it is actually responsible for um, creating that TSH. Can you talk a little bit about the pituitary gland and maybe issues that could prevent that from functioning the way it needs to? Yeah, so the pituitary gland is, I think, oftentimes – the culprit. Most things are traced back to the pituitary gland. It's in the frontal lobe of the brain. And in yoga, they call it the third eye. 
Yep, or the um, master gland, we call it. And it really controls the whole endocrine system. It sends a thyroid-stimulating hormone down. It sends a follicle-stimulating hormone down for ovulation. So it has mm. a huge part in, f- in fertility. It really signals everything. How the endocrine system works, in a nutshell, is the pituitary speaks to the thyroid, to the adrenals, down to the ovaries, back up. And that's how ovulation happens, that that sequence. Mm. You know, an egg is dropped, you get a signal back to the pituitary gland. And that's called your HP axis, hypothalamus pituitary axis. So that controls thyroid, adrenals, ovaries. Um, Yeah, it's really just a tiny little gland in the frontal lobe of the brain that controls everything hormone related. And it doesn't get a lot of, um, I guess, publicity. (laughs) Everybody thinks it's the thyroid. And sometimes it is the pituitary when the TSH is off. Mm -hmm. And in rebuilding, we use a lot of herbals to rebuild the pituitary gland or to balance it. Um, And sometimes we'll use animal extracts. They're they're called protomorphogens, PMGs, that will rebuild the pituitary gland. And I use acupuncture. I go right into the third eye point there and help balancing all of that. Interesting. Um, I also think about, um, you know, just in general, people are, people are really stressed. I just kind of wonder if, you know, there's all of these kind of chain reactions, so to speak, that, you know, it sounds like ultimately are maybe coming from the pituitary. what are some ways that people can support their pituitary gland? Or is that something that we, that we can do with our, uh, with our lifestyle? You know, a lot of it, I think, would be quiet, quieting the mind mm. and relieving stress and just calming things down um, so it can send the right signals at the right time, right? If it's constantly in this fight-or-flight state, then the brain is, is more reactive wow. and, and controlling the endocrine system versus calmly dropping the follicle-stimulating hormone or the thyroid-stimulating hormone. I think that the pituitary gland is a lot of times overstimulated. Mm-hmm. So it's pumping out all these hormones sometimes. And that's another thing. Like, we can have too much of a hormone in right. the thyroid, and that's a problem too because it's overstimulated. So I think, I think honestly, just the 10 minute of quiet meditation is yeah. probably the best thing for calming the pituitary gland. Wow. That is so interesting because we had a guest recently that was just – you know, talking about, you know, observing her different patients and different things. And she's had, you know, some patients that would respond really well and then others that it would take a lot longer. And so she kind of would ask them and she started just noticing that the people who were meditating every day um, would have far better results. I believe it. And this patient that she was working with that had had like uh, exceptionally fast um, healing with the protocol she was doing um, was meditating for an hour a day. Wow. And then kind of contrasting that with some of her other patients that she was like, man, why aren't they responding? What's going on? And they're they're not meditating. There's probably a lot of other things too, but it yeah. was interesting how she kind of honed in on that one thing and she kind of started doing that for herself. Oh. Being like, okay, well, I'm going to start like being better about making my time and she'd like set a little timer and stuff. And she's like, I actually noticed that I was feeling better and my skin cleared up and these little, little things, you know, but you start to notice it. Um, but she shared this example that one of her patients had given her and I thought it was just genius. And it's like a five second meditation. So what he did was get those little, uh, like sticky, like colored stickers. It could be anything. Yeah. Post-it notes, but just put them everywhere as little reminders. And then when to look at one, just five seconds, 
Take a deep breath. Love that. And just focus on your breath and try to not be distracted by everything, but it's just five seconds. But then doing it all throughout the day, you know, in the car, while you're at work, mm -hmm. while you're at the coffee station or the water cooler, whatever. And you just do like a little five second, like calm down, take a deep breath, slow down. Um, and I thought, well, you know, that is such a um, simple thing. Because even setting aside yeah. 10 minutes a day, that can yeah. feel stressful, you know? Um, so I like this idea of like, you know, maybe it just starts with five seconds. I then love maybe it. it moves to like one minute. Um, a couple times a day or something like that and kind of building your way up because the more that you do it and the more that you get really comfortable with being in that, uh, you know, calmed state where you're just trying to quiet all of the mm -hmm. chatter that's always there, um, you it gets easier to do and you start to really like it. And now suddenly setting aside 10 minutes to meditate or yes. 30 minutes to meditate is not like a daunting thing. You're like, oh, yes. Yes, I need that. I'm going to feel so much better afterward. And yeah, because it's... if it's stressful, right? You know, you're not going to want to do if you're right. stressed around it. Right. I had a mentor tell me once, and I thought this was a great idea. Is she said you can meditate anywhere. You don't have to sit, you know, on a in the floor in a certain position. She said just turn the radio off when you're driving. Yeah. And just the quiet and and that exactly what that that man was saying. You did too. Just pulls you out of that fight or flight mm -hmm. for five seconds or 10 minutes, whatever your drive is, and puts you into what we call rest and digest. And that's where the pituitary gland can communicate well with the thyroid and the adrenals and the ovaries. And that's where the body kind of can reset is mm -hmm. that, you know, that short of time, which I think acupuncture is amazing for as well. Right. Um, yoga is really great for that. Walking. I recently read that if you can get outside during sunrise and sunset, that can alone help heal your endocrine system because you're setting your circadian rhythm. So just mm. walking every morning at sunrise and then watching the sunset is a big is a huge healing wow. just factor in the whole body too. And that's a form of meditation, just walking outside, right? Right. Without headphones right. or on a conference call or you mm -hmm. know, that's the hard mm -hmm. part, just walking in the silence. Yeah. So yeah, I love that. I think that's that's what that's I think why our whole we're we're in this huge epidemic of everybody has a thyroid problem. Right. And everybody's having infertility and everybody's having hormone issues, right? And it's it is our culture and it is our society and it is our toxins in the water, in the air, and but also our, you know, addiction to digital social media and everything yeah. else like it just it just is mm -hmm. it's just constantly coming at us fight or flight all the time right and to have that now like kind of um you know biological component that that not only is it stressful to you to always be in that kind of stressful state and the mind is going crazy that's actually preventing your pituitary gland from functioning the way it's supposed Absolutely. to and then that's going to have this like, kind of chain reaction of effects yep which can manifest in all kinds of different symptoms that people are experiencing. Yes, and depression, anxiety, and fatigue are probably the biggest ones we're seeing the endocrine system express as. Right. Is uh, those three things. And that, I think that's become an epidemic as well, mm -hmm. is, you know, depression and anxiety in, in our culture. Yeah. And it, and it is, this thyroid is out of balance, this is out of balance, but, but why mm -hmm. is what we're trying to figure out. Why is all that out of balance? Oftentimes we find it sometimes comes back to a triggering event or a stressful event in somebody's life that their body mm. just hasn't recovered from or they haven't been able to really get over. Divorce, 
you know, money issues, job. I think grad school is a triggering event. Yeah. <laughs> Those things can be a death of a family member. Those things can absolutely cause your endocrine system to to go offline right. <laughs> and, and not quite come back to balance. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, um, think it's important to always uh, just have this appreciation for all of these amazing intricacies of the body that we really take for granted in so many ways. Absolutely. Because we're just aware of like, oh, my foot hurts or my head hurts or, oh, my shoulder kind of feels funny. You know, we get these kind of certain responses, um, but those nervous system responses or perception of pain is really just showing us like a tiny portion Mm -hmm. of what is going on in the body. Um, So just, I know for people out there, you know, once you have a collection of symptoms that you're presenting and you start looking online and you're searching or whatever, and it can feel really overwhelming. Yes. Um, So just to kind of remember that it's not this simple, like if this symptom, then that, and it's true in every case and every person. And if it's that, then you do this and then that fix it for every person. I wish it was that simple. Yeah. (laughs) I wish it was that simple. Yes. And we always say in our practice that pain is a good thing. Symptoms are a good thing. Your body's trying to tell us something. Mm -hmm. Something's out of balance, right? Let's not take medication to dull it and to suppress it and to quiet those symptoms. Right. And let's not take stimulants, right, to just give us fatigue and you know, something to just calm us down at night. Steroids to calm the inflammation without actually figuring out what's causing the inflammation in the first place. Right. Those symptoms are trying to tell us, dig, dig deeper, find it. Right. Do you have any, um, I guess, closing thoughts for people out there who might have a thyroid condition or know somebody that they suspect might have a thyroid condition? Yeah. My, my thought would be, there's a cause why the thyroid's not working and digging deeper and finding if it is adrenal, if it is pituitary, if it is gut related is, is crucial. And if it is autoimmunity, finding out what's causing the thyroid to be out of balance. Mm-hmm. And then also if you feel you you have a lot of thyroid symptoms and you're told your thyroid is normal, dig deeper. Did they run a thorough panel? Did they look at the functional ranges of the levels? Are you on the low end? you know, all of that matters. So my thought would be dig deeper. Okay. If you're not feeling you're, you're getting well with, with what you're doing. Right. And then you kind of touched on a lot of great little tips, um, throughout this podcast as well. Uh, meditation, <laughs> what a great thing. And for me, I'm very, um, you know, I love kind of knowing that kind of sciencey side or physiological side. So kind of now understanding this, uh, that like maybe there's a strong link between meditating and helping to support the pituitary. Absolutely. I love that. Um, you talked about selenium, vitamin E, um, anti-inflammatory foods, avoiding gluten. <laughs> glutathione um, is a glutathione. good one for inflammation of the thyroid. Yep. Okay. That's a really potent antioxidant in the body that most of us are low on if we are inflamed, but that will help the thyroid function better. You can okay. get it in a cream form or oral. And is that something you would recommend people do just in general? They can just go on their own and get this glutathione cream? Absolutely. It is a good, it is, it's, I think it's as important for inflammation as taking vitamin D. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's really powerful. 
You also talked about reducing uh, caffeine and just in general trying to reduce our stress levels so that we're not mm-hmm. getting that um, overactive adrenal bringing down the thyroid function. I think that also kind of ties in the meditation component. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you had recommended earlier uh, like a kind of paleo style mm-hmm. diet. Um, can you speak a little bit to you know, maybe like the component of starches and sugars and stuff in general? Because I've actually heard, um, you know, that there's uh, actually maybe more danger associated with those starches and especially the highly processed carbohydrates, um, where in a lot of our culture focuses on like whether or not you should eat animal products and animal products are bad. Right. Um, And, you know, one of our guests actually pointed out, you know, there's all of this you know, fuss over whether or not you should eat animal products. And really the main issue or the main problem for most people is not animal products, it's the starches and sugars. I agree. I think, I think, first of all, addressing the animal kind of side note, I think that's a very personalized diet. I have found that certain blood types do better with animal products, certain ones don't. So, You know, I wouldn't say I'm pro-paleo, pro-vegan. I think it's all dependent on the person's body chemistry, mm-hmm. right? And, and if their body makes proper hydrochloric acid well to break down the animal products, right? So all that matters. Right. But I agree. We've, we've, we've drawn like a line in the sand in functional medicine and mainstream medicine of, you know, is that good or bad? And nobody's looking at the real killer <laughs> of sugar and starches. I think sugar for most people is harder to get off than nicotine. Mm. I think it is a drug that we are addicted to and it inflames the entire system and it feeds bugs. We know sugar feeds cancer. We know it does. That's why we give sugar in a PET scan. Mm. When people go to see if they have cancer still, they have them drink a sugar drink because the cancer will kind of light up, it'll stimulate and try to eat all the sugar. And so then you can see the cancer light up on the scan. Wow. So we know it feeds, it feeds cancer. We know it feeds fungus. So then we have this epidemic of people having yeast problems, right? right? I mean, yeast is more than just like yeast infections and thrush, which are issues mm-hmm. in our society, but it can definitely be in the gut and upsetting the gut and the endocrine system for sure. Um, but it also feeds bugs. You know, it feeds bacteria, viruses, which is why I think a lot of people get sick around the holidays, Mm. not because it's flu season and it's colder out. I mean, that could be part of it, but I think because people's immune systems are taking a dip from all the sugar and the stress and the carbohydrates. But yes, it absolutely inflames and dysregulates the thyroid, Mm -hmm. the, all of the carbs in it. And I think it absolutely is a problem with the endocrine system for sure. And nobody's talking about it quite the same way. And sugar's in everything, everything processed. So taking people off gluten because we know gluten inflames the thyroid, guess what? Then they start doing gluten-free stuff, which three years ago was harder to find. Now gluten-free stuff's everywhere. And some of it just has so much sugar because they have to make it taste good right. <laughs> and other you know starches and things are in it so it's it's tough yeah. it is tough the best thing is is kind of if it's not picked killed or grown <laughs> don't eat it okay that's, that's a good that's a kind of a good rule whether you're doing animal or protein or not right because you can totally do fruits and vegetables that way um another another really great advice for somebody dealing with endocrine system is is 
endocrine system dysregulation is shopping on the outside of the grocery store. Mm -hmm. You've probably heard that before. That's where all the produce is. That's where all the, you know, the meats and the protein are at, you know, versus the aisles with all the sugar and the carbs. So yeah, it's hard. It is hard. Even just salad dressings, right? People go to a restaurant and they think they're doing the right thing by ordering a salad. But you know, most processed salad dressings, unless you're making it at home, is going to have a ton of sugar to make it taste good. And I think that is the bigger problem for the endocrine system for sure. Interesting. So are there um, any, I guess, natural sweeteners that you recommend? Like we think about honey, maple syrup, stevia. Those are definitely easier for your body to process for sure. There's a coconut sugar now, which I think is easy to process for people who can tolerate coconut. Some people have issues with coconut oil, believe it or not, even Mm. though it's like the superfood. Some people can't digest it well. Monk fruit is another good one. I haven't had anybody have problems with that that I have have heard of yet. Um, Monk fruit sweetener. um, Absolutely, people can bake with dates. I found that to be really good. Maple syrup, honey, I think those are definitely much better. Xylitol, some people love and hate the taste of xylitol. <laughs> Same with stevia. Some people love or hate it. Right. Some people have found that xylitol seems to cause like just some gas and bloating for them. Um, but others are fine. Yeah. Stevia does have a different taste, but most people get used to it and seem yeah. to like it. In fact, there is even a soda out now that's made out of stevia that you can find at Whole Foods and HEB even. Oh, wow. And so I've actually been able to get some patients off you know, four Dr. Peppers a day (laughs) kind of thing, which there's so much sugar in, in soda, like 30 or 40 grams of sugar, which I mean, we shouldn't even have that much in a day and it's in one soda can. Um, but we've been able to get them off that with the, the stevia sodas. Mm -hmm. And that's been a huge substitute. Now, some people may argue your body reads it the same and it could still cause some glucose issues. I haven't seen that to be true in, in blood sugar readings. So I've, I've been a proponent of the stevia sodas. Yeah. And it is your, it is wonderful that there's uh, much more availability for that stuff. I think even like if you go to Starbucks and stuff, you can get like stevia with your coffee. They have honey. I know for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And they have all milk alternatives too. They've gotten, right. They've jumped on the bandwagon with all of that, which is great. Yeah. (laughs) So just those little steps. So I'm like a big proponent of giving people like little changes you can make, you know, um, like getting, uh, you know, getting something unsweetened and then maybe like having a couple packets of stevia or whatever that you add yourself. Yeah. The insidious thing about eating in restaurants, um, eating in certainly fast food restaurants, um, but even things we buy from the store, a lot of times we're not really looking at the nutrition information. And if you're eating in a restaurant or fast food place, some of those places now will publish their nutrition mm-hmm. info online, but, you know, for the most part, we're just not really aware of it. So, you know, like when I started getting really into cooking at home and making my own foods, I was just shocked at like how yeah. much salt or something I would need to add just to get it to like taste even reasonably close to those other things. And it kind of like made that little red flag in my head go off like, man, if I'm having to add this much to my healthy thing I'm trying to make just to get it to kind right. of taste good compared to with a store bot or the restaurant bot, like how much... Because they have no accountability most of the time for how much sugar and salt and things like that they're adding to food. So I think, you know, one of the hardest parts, um, especially for people who are used to, you know, 
grabbing a Starbucks, grabbing a this, eating at a restaurant, whatever, is that you really just don't have any idea how much of those different yeah. things you're taking in. So that can be a big piece right there is just starting to grow your awareness of how much sugar you're taking in. Yes. Um, I've done some videos where I'll actually take uh, sugar packets and show like how many sugar packets are in a Starbucks drink or in a soda. And I'll be like, have you ever added 14 sugar packets to your tea? Could you see yourself adding <laughs> 19 sugar packets to one drink? Because that's how much sugar is in a lot of these things. Um, so just starting to gain that little insight to understand like how much of these things we're really taking in. And then making those simple switches. Like you're yes. using coconut sugar in your coffee instead of regular sugar. You're drinking the, I think it's Zevia. Yes, that is <laughs> um, it. Yes, the thank soda you. with stevia instead of high fructose yeah. corn syrup. Um, and yes. you just kind of start making these little alterations and suddenly you can um, have a really drastic improvement in your health just as your body starts to go, thank you. <laughs> and then your metabolism and your pituitary gland, your thyroid gland can work better if it's not bogged down with all of that synthetic refined sugar. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so your metabolism will bounce back just going off that stuff. But people get stuck in this feedback loop, right? They, they need the sugar for the energy right. they feel. Right. And so they're doing more sugar to get a false sense of energy. And I mean, especially in the morning, people put it in their coffee and things, but then they crash. But if we just can get them off of it, mm -hmm. their body can make energy better. Right. And that's that's the hard part. We do a cleanse every year, January in our office, and it's a 21 day cleanse and it's fruits, vegetables only. Um up to day 10 and then a day 11 if you want to add in chicken fish or turkey or eggs you can and it's amazing to watch people a lot of them keep a lot of the um you know they keep a lot of the habits mm -hmm. like they've a lot of people I got to put honey in their coffee and like they've just adopted that lifelong or they'll you know do oil and vinegar instead of the sugary salad dressing in a right. restaurant now there's just small tips but it's really interesting to watch them towards like day 19, 20, 21 to where strawberries and raspberries and blueberries just start tasting so sweet because mm -hmm. you're no longer doing processed sugar. Right. So real food and the real fructose and real sugar in, in our fruits and vegetables taste so sweet. Mm -hmm. And then they introduce some sugar back in. And I, and I have them go slow and try to do one thing at a time, if, if at all. Some of them are like, you know what? I'm off. I'm off sugar or dairy and I know I feel better. So, but when they do do something processed or sugar, they're like, oh my gosh, this is so mm -hmm. sweet. This is awful. I can't believe I ate like that, ate that stuff. And their right. taste buds just freak out mm -hmm. because they're so used to, you know, getting natural sugars. Right. And then that component of, you know, if you do have a yeast overgrowth yeah. and the yeast will actually trick you into thinking you're craving more sugar just because yes. it's like this little demon trying to feed itself. <laughs> it's totally so then it. you're like, oh, but I have these insatiable sugar cravings. And it's like, well, it's not really you craving it, but that's a hard thing to. What I tell know. patients is, is the, is the craving bigger than you? Like, can you just not control it? And if they say yes, then I know that it's probably a yeast overgrowth. Interesting. The candida, yep. If they're like, or a parasite. Yeah. They're like, oh yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to scratch somebody's face off if I don't have <laughs> sugar in the next 10 minutes. Okay, that's that's the little demon you're talking about. I'm going to yeah. use that term <laughs> that you're talking about. Like, give me the sugar. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is a bad addiction. Definitely. Well, I just want to thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. And I'm definitely looking forward to having you back on the program again. Great. Thank you so much. Definitely. 
And I want to thank all of you so much for listening today. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Tanisha Wards, you can visit austinholisticdoctor.com. You can also visit wellnessplus.tv if you'd like to see the full video version of this interview, along with hundreds of other health and wellness videos. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day and come back and join us again soon. The Wellness Plus Podcast, copyright 2018, Target Public Media, LLC, all rights reserved.